Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Greetings, friends of the podcast. Our first recording of Origin Book 4 lasted a little longer than normal, so Book 4 will be broken into two parts. We will then proceed to our next theologian, Hippolytus, and his Contra Noetum. This will begin our journey through the Trinitarian controversies that will ultimately lead to the writing of the Nicene Creed. Before we launch into the episode, last week we received several comments about our discussion of Origen's Book 3 that focused heavily on his view of free will. With any discussion of theology, there will be differing views and perspectives on debates that have existed throughout Christian history. One of them will be the relationship between divine freedom and human will. Origen follows closely the Platonists and Aristotelians who had a decidedly open view of human freedom. That is not to say God is not involved in human affairs, though, from a Christian Platonist perspective, like Origins. Nevertheless, the theologians we have studied to this point all very adamantly defend the necessity of the freedom of the will for moral responsibility. It will not be until we reach Augustine that we begin to see a stronger view of the subjection of the will to the powers of original sin. Yet, Even for Augustine, his views change over the course of his life, and interpretations of his work vary from interpreter to interpreter. We will look at Aquinas, who views Augustine very differently from John Calvin. In the last episode, we digressed into a conversation about John Calvin's theology because Origen addressed scriptural passages that are foundational for a reformed view of the relationship between God and man as it relates to the human will in the process of salvation. Even within Reformed theology, there are various perspectives on the extent to which God foreordains human events and controls the human will, as in the case of Pharaoh. All Reformed people believe that there is a way to understand human responsibility for our moral, or immoral, actions, even within a will that is subject to sin. That being said, thinkers like Origen would reject that if a will is enslaved to a sin nature, How is it that we should still consider them morally responsible if they could not act otherwise? I have read Calvin's Institutes, and I know that he believes in different orders of causation with regards to human actions. For Calvin, it is not that humans do not have some role in their decision to choose to do X or Y, but rather God's will always has the overriding role, in Calvin's terms, the primary cause for God versus the human secondary cause. And for Calvin, this primarily relates to human action in the process of salvation. Not all Calvinists are complete theological determinists, where God makes everything in the world happen according to his will. Calvin makes a distinction between God's perfect and permissive will in order to account for the fact that the world we live in is not a perfect world. Nevertheless, God is still in control. This is one of the great contributions, in my opinion, of Calvin's thought. He very adequately describes the state of this imperfect world in which we live that I think that anyone who is honest would see. In deference to Reformed theology, which forms out of John Calvin's thought, the primary concern is a safeguarding of a good God's providential control over the world and doing what is necessary for his own glory. To the extent that I have been a sinner in need of a God who loves me despite my own proclivity towards sin, I love 
personally the Reformed emphasis that God will protect his elect no matter what. Again, on a personal level, though, I have never understood, nor do most Calvinists think I can understand, how it is God chooses who his elect are and whether or not one can truly know if they are part of the elect. I'm entering into the debate here rather than trying to purely state the Calvinist position, but I want our audience to know that all of us on the podcast have thought deeply about these issues and have personal opinions on them. I know that both Tom and I have spent time in Calvinist and Reform circles taking it to be our own theology. Neither of us consider ourselves part of that camp any longer, but we have great respect for Reformed thinkers. To that end, I've invited a friend from my theology department who is writing specifically on the extra-Calvinisticum, an element of Reformed theology that I will let him explain in due time. I know we need to have a Reformed thinker on, so hopefully sometime in March he will come on our show. We will not be getting to Augustine until probably this summer, so the debates between Pelagius and Augustine will have to wait until then, at which point it would be great to have a Reformed thinker in our discussion on a regular basis. All right, enough prolegomena. I hope we have not alienated our Reformed listeners. That was never our intention. We will try to continue to be as fair as possible, but if we argue for a position, there is a good chance that we will look one-sided at times. We will do our best to operate under principle of charity for other positions. If we have fallen short of that, and when we fall short of that, we apologize. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this discussion of Origins Hermeneutics of Scripture. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Um, yeah. body, four. soul, and spirit. <laughs> yeah, book four uh, is basically um, it's probably one of the most well-known sections of the uh, on first principles because people use it to demonstrate that the church fathers uh, did not have a literal view of uh, like a did not read scripture literally. Um, and the quintessential example is origin. There are only a few places where we have people who try to give a sort of systematic account or a full account of what does it mean to read scripture? How do you read scripture? Um, the word here is hermeneutic in Greek and hermeneutic has to do with interpretation. And so origin sort of lays out his hermeneutic, which isn't necessarily standard for all of the period, but it is one person who deals with it very thoroughly. Um, But it's important to start right out from uh, book four, chapter one, although he doesn't take a literal reading of scripture alone, he does the allegorical stuff, which we'll get into. But one of the first things he says, book one or book four, chapter one, part one um, is the scriptures, which we believe to be divine, both from what is called the old Testament and also from the New Testament, endeavoring to confirm our faith by reason. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll start it there. You know, we, we know that we're going to get to the allegorical, but right off the bat, he lets us know that that does not mean that he has a lesser view of the scriptures. Well, and I should, you know, I think we should maybe, I mean, and obviously we'll get to this. You were just kind of doing an intro there, but he does admit of literal interpretation for some things. That's what's a little interesting about his approach to studying the scripture, his, his hermeneutic, is that he says, yeah, there is a, 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 there are times when you should read the Bible literally. But it's interesting because he says that when you read the Bible, sometimes you should take it at face value. And I don't know, I, I think maybe literally is kind of, a, can be a little misleading of a term because 
Um, and he clearly uses literally in a much broader sense because if we talk, if we use the term literally, literally, yeah. I, like, uh, like I think nobody really believes that you take the Bible always literally. For instance, when uh, Jesus says, I am the way, uh, meaning a road, he doesn't, nobody would say he's literally a physical road. Or when he says, I am the gate of the sheep, nobody thinks he's literally a physical gate. And so I don't think that's so much what Origen's getting at as much as um, what he, you know, what I think we would refer to as a historical grammatical interpretive approach to the Bible, which means you interpret it according to authorial intent. That is, the author is trying to record something, and he has like an initial intent, and you're supposed to follow that. And so sometimes that means being literal. Like if it says that King David, you know, marched into battle, we take that literally. So I think we're all in agreement. Like, I think everybody agrees with that to some degree. But what Origen does is he actually says, look, even a lot of passages that the writers intended to be literal shouldn't be taken literally. And he, you might use, uh, I mean, well, one classic example he brings up is the creative process of Genesis, the, the seven-day creation. He says, clearly, that's not meant to be taken literally. Uh, it's not supposed to be a literal seven days. And one of the reasons he gives is, that it'd be impossible to have a day without a sun, right? Which that that actually describes. It describes a, a, a period of day in which there is no sun in the sky. So he says, so clearly that can't be literal. Um, but yeah, so, that, so yeah. sometimes literally, sometimes not. Just for reference, so that's chapter three, uh, paragraph one, where he talks about the, the first and the second day. Um, and that's where he would argue that, uh, will no doubt that these are figurative expressions which indicate certain mysteries through a semblance of history, so it seems like history, but not actual events. Um, and so a problem that we've discussed frequently on here that I've mentioned is what we call anachronism, which is where we sort of take how we view the world um, and assume that someone else thinks like we do. Um, and so, you know, Tom was introducing uh, these words, grammatical, historical, authorial intent. As far as I can tell, that, that kind of reading doesn't exist for some time. Uh, but that basically is how you, Protestants and Catholics, a lot of Western Christians have begun to read the scriptures. And so if you're having an argument over what the scriptural text means, oftentimes people will say, well, originally the author intended this, or in context, it means this. And the ancients would not have thought that way. Authorial intent doesn't seem really to matter almost at all um, in, terms of, in terms of the human author. I don't know if I accept that. I, I mean, I think I disagree. It's true that, of course, if we talk about his, the, the phrase historical grammatical approach or the phrase authorial intent, those are terms from today. But I don't think, I mean, it's hard to say. I can't get in a time machine and go back in time. I am literally right now trying to explain what it seems to me that he's saying when he says, you don't always take the Bible literally. And I say that because nobody takes the Bible literally, nobody, all the time. And he is saying something different from what somebody in, like, like for instance, a modern evangelical would mean by that. Like, I, in other words, that was the point I was making. Yeah. I would say that you don't say Jesus is a gate of a sheep. You don't take that literally. And he would say that too. But he goes further because he says, or he would say, that the killing, the order to kill the Canaanites, genocide, is also not something that happened. And was, you know, and also should not be taken 
literally, at which point I would say, well, that actually should be taken literally. And so my point is he actually is approaching it differently from, from how I'm approaching it. I'm looking for good phrases to describe that. I don't think ancients were like, I don't understand what you mean when you say that the author intended something. I just can't imagine that they would not understand or would not have a category for that. I'm with you that we have different categories and that we think that, that we can certainly be anachronistic. But I think they fully understood what, what is meant when somebody intended something by writing it down. I also, just with that, what kind of I'm doing is I'm just trying to find a way to describe what it is that he's rejecting. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? He doesn't, in other words, he is saying something different from what I'm saying. When I say, oh, yeah, you don't always take the Bible literally, I agree with that. He's saying something different from what I'm saying, which is why I used those modern terms. Yeah. And part of the tension that we might have from our modern perspective um, came about, I I didn't realize how recent it was until I studied this a bit more, but um, the Niagara Falls Convention, and that's really where the fundamentalism comes from. I didn't know that it was such a um, a specifically articulated movement, 1895, and they come up with the big fundamentals of um, what it means to be uh, a Orthodox Christian, I suppose. This is in America. And part of the the key idea is that the Bible is to be taken literally. And again, what does that mean? And part of the tension of uh, some modern day thought is this idea that we call fundamentalism and the literal interpretation. And I've I've heard some interesting um, ways to explain this, but part of the tension is this. If we don't take it literal, then suddenly uh, meaning that the actual events happen as they're actually described physically in, in time and in space, then what we're doing is picking and choosing um, what, which truths we, we want to fully believe and which ones you know we want to just um, uh, allegorize away. I don't think that that's Origins intent, that he's, he's uncomfortable with some of the, the truths there per se, but I think his, his focus um, is, as I've heard someone describe once, a difference between the scripture being um, they put um, in... Uh, uh, oh, the term instead of in uh, when it's without error, in, oh, inerrant or in yeah, uh, yeah versus infallible. Infallibility. Yeah, thank you. So inerrant would mean that there's not one you know typo mistake or a contradiction historically, but infallible refers to deeper principles and spiritual meanings. And I think this, if anything, has been Origen's point all along, is the physical applies to the physical and the spiritual applies to the spiritual. So if you read something physically then his point is that it might not apply spiritually to your soul, but isn't the whole point the spiritual edification of the scripture? And so if we're focusing too much on the physical happens, happenstance of it, then we might miss the more important meaning that he believes to be there. And those, that's his terminology, physical versus spiritual. So I was trying to explain it maybe in ways that I think we would understand, but he, trying to explain what he means, is the, he used the terminology Ben just used, that you can look at the Bible and speak of it as having a physical meaning. And as far as I can tell, that kind of gets at what we mean. So, and I wanted, I wanted to clarify this as well, because I wanted to take the word literal literally as well. And, <laughs> and I know that this is not, this isn't, I have no idea how origins mean to use the word literal or like why it's translated literal the way it is. But I just wanted to be clear there is a difference between taking something literally and just saying the referent of your word is concrete rather than some abstract. Because I can be, I take Genesis literally in the sense that I think it is a metaphor, and I take that metaphor literally. 
Like, I think it, what it's a metaphor for actually happened in the sense that God made the world and there was a beginning to man and that God is the beginning of all things. Like, there's ways in which I take it literally because I think the extension of the words is something that actually ended up happening, but I do think it is a metaphor. So I, like, I could say something metaphorically to Tom, like, it's raining cats and dogs outside, and I could be speaking literally, but that, what that means in that instance is, for the metaphor of the, just it's raining a lot. So, so I don't know. Now, obviously, I don't think Origen gets into this deep of a language distinction. He seems to think it's history versus um, the spiritual. And that might be a good way to describe it. I, I mean, think, yeah. Because <laughs> truth is, I mean, I think today people use the word literally. When they say, no, I mean literally, what they mean is, that the words I'm using have no metaphor in them. And have only concrete have only entities this, as yes, reference. That's, yeah. I think how most people mean it. Yeah. And I think that that, I don't, now that is something I think might have been confusing to people, like, back when Origin was writing. Because, because of course, to actually only speak literally in that way like, <laughs> yeah. would be impossible. But, yeah, I think that it has a historical reference as opposed to a spiritual. Yes. Yeah. I, I think if I could just add this um, Erasmus of Rotterdam, the famous uh, Renaissance writer, he speaks to this and shows that there's a, a, this is a common tendency, this, this struggle. Um, Erasmus writes, let me write a requirement for better understanding of Holy Scripture. I would suggest that you read those commentators who do not stick so closely to the literal sense. The ones I would recommend most highly after St. Paul himself are Origen, Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine. Uh, Erasmus is suggesting that Origen is one of the best to understand it in not reading it so close to literal sense. He goes on to say, to many of our modern theologians, they're prone to a literal interpretation, which they suddenly misconstrue. They do not delve into the mysteries. And they act as if St. Paul were not speaking the truth when he says that our law is spiritual. So here Erasmus um, is equating the idea with literal um, as misconstruing the deeper truth of the mysteries, which he equates again to the law being spiritual. So I think that helps... um, clarify how origin has been interpreted in history. Yeah. That's uh, I I that's how I saw the distinction as well. It was it was like there is a spiritual meaning through the whole Bible and in everything. Mm-hmm. And in every little like, you know, these two daughters seduced this man. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's some spiritual meaning in that too. And and he really thinks this and I'm like, okay. And but then he goes, yeah, but of course this probably happened in history and mm-hmm. we shouldn't doubt that. Mm-hmm. You know, but he's he's kind of liberal with it. Like, well, I mean, if it's, you know, something we really can't doubt in history, then sure, we'll say it happened in history. But otherwise, it's an allegory for something. Yeah, he yeah, does, does say. Okay. I was, I was going let, to, let's be, let's be clear on, actually, he calls it the threefold sense of Scripture. Um, nice. So it's not actually just twofold. It's the flesh, the soul, and the spirit. So this is four, two, four. Um, and... Yeah, I'm, I'm now I, I bring this up partly because I'm not a hundred percent sure what the difference between the soul and the spirit is. <laughs> I was just about to say the same thing. That's why I didn't even bring it up before because I never made sense to me what the distinction he he had, like what distinction he was making between soul and spirit. Like it made no sense. But I I wanted to raise it because he he I mean he literally calls it the threefold sense. Um, each one must therefore portray the meaning of the divine words in a threefold way upon his soul. Um, 
So, so the simple are edified by the flesh, which is the obvious interpretation. The man who has made some progress is edified in his soul. And the man who is perfect um, is, is this man may be edified by the spiritual law, which is a shadow of the things to come. For just as a man consists of body, soul, and spirit, so in the same way does the scripture, which has been prepared by God to be given for man's salvation. Ben, do you have some thoughts on the difference between uh, the soul and the spirit here? Yeah, this is this is good. Um, the tripartite division of the soul, meaning the threefold division, is common among um, the classics, and sure. we hear that in Plato and uh, following him. But I think the clearest way to put it is the soul is the psyche, the, the mind. Yeah. And that's different from a Holy spirit that, that Christians believe dwell within. Wait, the psyche and the mind are, so for, uh, for Plato, I believe the noose is the mind is the highest part. The soul is slightly less, right? And then it's the body, the physical. Right. Yeah. Plato's not using spirit. He's not using this division. I don't mean to uh, confuse and say that. Okay. I just mean threefold division is common and Plato doesn't say it's, you know, um, the body's part of the soul. But anyway, well, um, but part of the, the human composition, I mean, right. Origin, I believe, is saying here that the soul pertains to that element of man, which, um, to put simply, we might say is the ethos or the ethics. And this could be a lot of the ethical benefit, like we might okay. say the moral of the story. And um, a lot of the teachings will teach us great morals, you know, be strong, be courageous, don't give up, have perseverance. These are great. These are virtues. And notice, they're not simply just physical happenstance. They're not just referring to, here's historically what happened in space and time. He's saying this is an ethical and edifying message. The reason that's contrasted to the spirit is for the Christian, the spiritual meaning goes beyond that, many times beyond that. And it's fascinating to see that as you read through the Old Testament, it seems to hold up. It doesn't seem like this is such a stretch when he starts speaking that there's a spiritual truth and it's pointing to this higher meaning. For example, Moses passing through the Red Sea um, is later seen by Christians as baptism. And just after Christ was baptized, what does Christ do? He goes into the desert for 40 days. And of course, the Hebrews go into the wilderness for 40 years. And then what happens? Well, then after the 40-year period or 40-day period, that's when Christ begins his ministry, preaching the kingdom of heaven. And that's when the Israelites began conquering their kingdom, the uh, promised land. And so we start seeing these massive major uh, symbols, and it seems that for many Christians, the spiritual meaning of it are things that point directly to Christ, the fulfillment that's Christ to come. And, I mean, there's just a multitude, almost any of the Old Testament stories seem to have something a Christian could pull from. The sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah is literally sacrificing the son on the mountain. That means the Lord provides. The Lord provides a sacrifice. And so instead of it just being, as many could see, a crazy story about a man who almost, you know, murders his kid, it's God showing that he provides the ultimate sacrifice for the propitiation of sin. And the whole Old Testament seems to come alive in a spiritual sense to the Christian who can make sense of a lot of these stories that might be, as Paul says, through a glass darkly in the old historical sense, but the spiritual sense illuminates that it, uh, the Christian message of salvation in Christ. So what was the soul, though, sense? Was that the, were, is that what you meant by the virtues that are just displayed. Okay. Yeah, they're teaching some moral or ethic. Okay. And one thing too, just to make sure everybody's clear on Trevor uh, referred to this a bit ago, but he does specifically say that if you take the Bible, he says the entire Bible is valuable in a spiritual sense. The entire Bible is true in a spiritual sense. And then he says, some of it is true in a physical sense, maybe a lot of it, but it's not all. Yeah. 
So if you were to ask Origen, did Jesus really resurrect from the dead? I assume he would say yes. Ab- absolutely. It's yeah. a, in the Contra Kelsum, that's one of the things that he goes yeah. through. And he says, and he actually goes through physical bodily resurrection. Yeah. And one so he would, take, he would take that physical reading and say, that is correct. By the way, I think he would say there's a spiritual reading to it as well. That is that when we die to self, maybe, or something, or maybe this is the soulish interpretation we die to self, then we get new life, so to speak. Or maybe the spiritual interpretation would be that being born again requires that we die and then we're, we're born again by the Spirit. So he would see a threefold interpretation of that. But I think, and he doesn't explicitly refer to this. Well, maybe he does. I can't remember. Because um, I read that part over a week ago. But um, I don't think that he thinks that the Israelites really uh, committed the genocide in Canaan. Is that... Yeah, I'm pretty sure he believes that that didn't happen and that it would be repugnant, uh, horrible to say that God commanded that. So he would then give a spiritual, he would say that has, physically that is not correct, didn't happen, but it has a spiritual sense in which it's true. Maybe something like God commands us to to eliminate all uh, idols in our lives or something along those lines. Uh, So that's kind of his approach. Yeah, so um, just to one of the big one of the big things for Origin. Uh, so now we're uh, in chapter two, part nine. Um, cer- consequently, the word of God has arranged for certain stumbling blocks, as it were, hindrances and impossibilities inserted in the midst of the law and the history. Um, and basically, so these stumbling blocks show us. Uh, that we should be looking for a deeper truth. So it's kind of interesting. So when you come across some really hard reading where it makes it look like God's a genocidal maniac, um, and you go, well, wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't seem like the character of God I know. And Or, I mean, you could go to something less intense and just say, well, wait, there's two orders of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Um and, you know, how can there be a day without the sun? And, you know, why does this, you know, there are these, there are these like problems in the text, as it were. Um, and Origen would say, those are stumbling blocks that ask us to seek a deeper meaning and a deeper interpretation. Um, and just to put, not to put too fine a point on it, but he continues on a little later, scripture wove into the story something which did not happen. Occasionally something which could not happen, and occasionally something which might not have happened but did not. Sometimes a few words are inserted which in the bodily sense are not true. Um, and basically they are not true. They're not, they didn't physically happen, but they're stumbling blocks so that they could, they could lead us to these deeper realities. That's how he views the scripture. And, and then he says, I like this, he goes, the chief object of the Holy Spirit is to preserve the coherence of the spiritual meaning. So it is not, it's like he's saying, look, this is divinely inspired. And the chief object of God is not to make sure that you have this perfect historical narrative, essentially, but it's to preserve this spiritual meaning. And that seems to make some sense when not denying that the Canaanite conquest happened, but for someone to read that and to try to pull away, and if we just focused on the historical, for example, we're like, okay, let's just do the physical, and literally would be like in a state where we want to commit genocide against non-believers. Um, and then when Christ comes and we're seen to love thine enemy, then suddenly this creates a tension that the Gnostics bring up and that origin actually was trying to overcome as well, that the God of the Old Testament was the bad God and the God of 
the New Testament's the good God, and that creates this duality. And that makes sense. I mean, that uh, it could be confusing. And hence, this, this notion of the spiritual meaning says, wait, as Christians, uh, one who reads about the genocide, what are we to do with that? And yes, we could take an ethical meaning that, you know, they trusted in God and they had faith and like Joshua, be strong and courageous. But that's still not quite, you know, really, is that like, is that the big teaching? And I think Tom just said it really well. Like maybe this refers to taking the idols out of life. Like it's a spiritual war within us that instead of physically slaying people, we want to spiritually slay. We want to um, put off the old self, die to self. That's, that's where the, the war is taking place. And so I think Origen's really encouraging the Christians to say, be mature in your faith. Do not commit a real genocide, um, but use this text to edify yourself ultimately in a spiritual sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, you know, just continuing 434, as to the physical reality of Jesus's death and resurrection, some may suppose that the former statements refer to all the scriptures and may suspect us as saying that because of some of the history did not happen, therefore none of it happened. Um but he goes on, the records of the Savior's life, um, or wait, uh, no, no, he's not, he's saying, I don't say that the records of the Savior's life are not true in a physical sense. Um, so anyway, but he goes on and basically says uh, that is a historical reality. Um, now, I guess, you know, you might wonder how is he able to make this judgment um, so if he's going to deny the conquest of Canaan and he's going to allow the physical, uh, resurrection of Jesus, you know, let's, let's put the fundamentalist question to him. How does he make this distinction? Is it fair for him to say, um, I can read, uh, Joshua, um, and I can read Matthew and I'll tell you Matthew happened. Joshua didn't. Do we, do we find that, uh, contradictory? Yeah, for me, actually, that was the number one thing that I was looking for. I read this one more closely than any of his works because I just wanted him to give a clear distinction. Like, what is your what is your measurement or what is your tool? What is the thing you use to say, okay, here we can tell that an event that is recorded as history in the Bible is not really history, and this other event, which is, is. Like, what is your... Um, uh, your criteria of delineation, well, you know, what, you know, and I, I never came across anything that made much sense. And I think that at the end of the day, that's ultimately the, the argument that, that one must, that one could bring against it. Yeah. I never found, I was also looking for a clear criterion. Yeah. There seems to be only one thing explicitly mentioned sort of, which is just this in general, the like he who has ears let him hear sort yeah. of attitude yeah. toward toward it where we are supposed to you know see the deeper meaning he says like he who has any sense of reason well no obviously and he acts like it's obvious and then that was the second part is he just has this appeal to logical congruency often i mean really at the end of the day he just goes well you know like this is incongruent in the history so obviously not this but but yeah, but then it, you know, what counts as logically incongruent because I can make, I can make something fit into a system where God is everything he is and yet still commands a Canaanite, you know, yeah. uh, slaughter. And so it's, it's pretty, I don't know. Well, and also if you come up with a logical congruence, you come up, you come up with a system that makes sense out of it. 
you can always end up on the opposite side of that congruence. Like you can say, well, here's congruence, and I'm going to take the bad side or the side that we don't like. And I, and I think it's not just a fundamentalist who can criticize him uh, on this tack. I think that a uh, skeptic could. I think a skeptic could walk in and say, well, this might, no, I'm, I'm, you know, not, I don't mean this to be uh, necessarily how I feel about reading this, but I can see a skeptic walking in and saying, oh, well, you basically are just saying that all the bits you don't like Right. aren't true. Yeah. And they're going to say, so this, at this point, uh, you've just made everything about Christianity, basically unfalsifiable because whenever you don't like something, if I, I, as a skeptic, look at this passage of the Bible and say, well, this is terrible. You just go, Oh, well, that didn't really happen. And for no other reason other than you didn't like it, or it doesn't square with what you believe. Right. I think that would be attack. Somebody might take. Right. One note to add on this is in the previous reading, he clearly specified that in terms of like the physical reality, like all that partakes of God because God creates all things and in, in relation to God because of that. Um, and all, you know, creation makes evidence, uh, the Lord. Well, the, he suggests that the Logos, uh, the second person of the Trinity, interacts with all rational beings. And so I would suggest that um, Origen is saying that the spiritual interpretation just having the, the logical is not sufficient. So I don't think he's making that on, a, on logical grounds. But then he says, and then only um, the third part only applies to the sanctified or the, the holy ones. And that's talking about the spirit, of course. And he does not seem to think that everyone has the spirit, although he thinks all humans participate in logos to some extent, to rationality. So his criteria, I think, simply put, as, as Trevor's hitting, hinting at, is um, that it is a spiritual thing. And that becomes a little bit tough because we're like, well, how do we know his spirit's right versus that spirit? But I think that if we're to take his his perspective is that he believes in an objective logic and an objective spirit and that the spirit does guide. He speaks about First Corinthians there. The spirit guides into all truth, uh, even the very depths of God. And the spirit reveals. So he's not saying that he's coming up with that, but it's the spirit itself which reveals. And, this, and scripture um, says as much. And so I think that, uh, Tom's right to say that this could definitely look like a, uh, a way out for skeptics. Um, somebody saying the parts that are toughest, I'm going to excuse. But I think Origen's doing, and this is me reading into it a little bit, is he's reading into this Hebrew text, which, I mean, if you really want to get into this study and, and exploration of how it came to be, was written by very primitive people, perhaps. You know, Moses is coming out of the desert, um, and, you know, the Joshua and the, and the Canaanites, these are nomads coming out. Of, of Egypt, enslaved people, and they're passing on these very powerful spiritual meanings. And if we take a razor blade and try to look at it scientifically and historically, then sometimes we're going to be a little bit dissatisfied by the language used. I think Origen's redeeming that by saying, look at the, if we want to talk about the intention of the author, his point, I think, would say the intention of the author is always a spiritual intention. And then the, the degree to which they have correct historiosity and scientific teaching, he goes, we, we, I can't trust that they're always having that motive, but I can't trust they're always having a spiritual motive. Yeah. Well, while it may be hard to discern whose spiritual meaning is best or something along those lines, I have always just in general, this is just like a general principle. I've always just thought about, I'm like, what is really the job of this book in, in a sense? Like, why am I reading the Bible? I'm not reading it per se to know, you know, exactly what, Abraham ate in the, you know, on any given Sunday. Like I, I don't need to know basically I'm not reading it for this exact historical narrative, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. And I'm also not trying to read it 
as a science textbook. I'm not trying to discover, you know, what the actual physical principles of reality are either. And so in just like a real general sense, I related to this, though I do find this a difficulty for him that he never set out a specific principle. I definitely just related to the fact that, yeah, I mean, in general, I'm reading this for a spiritual meaning. I am trying to find spiritual applicability to my life when I read the Bible. I mean, that's what I think this is the Holy Spirit speaking to me in some sense. And so I found it at least really applicable to, I actually think even just what modern evangelicals do, at least when you give a Sunday sermon, you read something maybe in history, but hopefully if the person's good, the sermon ends up with this very relatable and spiritual meaning to your life anyway. So, I mean, weirdly at the end of the day, when I was really thinking about it, I'm like, you know, I kind of think everyone thinks this to an extent. That there is a spiritual meaning that we are searching for. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is why we just, I think it's kind of why we read the Bible. I don't know. I, I, I don't think, know if that's crazy. But no, I think you're right. I I would actually say, and Ben, you made a good point there. Earlier when I was, I was trying to wrestle to explain what I thought Origen was contradicting when he, by what we called literal. Um, and for me, the word literal, because of four reasons that, that Trevor, you brought up is a, it's a, that's a tricky word. Yeah. The point at the end of the day, and maybe I shouldn't have said authorial intent because Ben, you were right. Authorial intent could have just been spiritual. That actually could have been what I was really trying to get at is what Trevor, you referred to as kind of having application, concrete application in history. That's really the question at bay. Now for me, and I've already stated this before, you know, being a con, you know, pretty conservative evangelical and, and, I do ascribe to that reading of scripture, meaning I do believe that the concrete historical representation in history is meant is is right. I think that there's some passages of scripture that people can kind of debate over and kind of maybe question the meaning, but in general, things that are passed off as historical, for instance, the Canaanite genocide, I think those things did happen. Um, well, of course, actually, you know, the Canaanite genocide actually didn't happen because the Jews didn't actually wipe them out, if you read the text. But the command to, I think, did happen. And so those are things I do take at that level. But most, like, modern fundamentalists, actually, I think all modern fundamentalists, and a lot of evangelicals, certainly uh, the more conservative branch of evangelicals, would say that that's the only way we should approach Scripture, is looking for that reading. And that is where I find origin helpful, because I disagree with them on that. I think that these... Oh, sorry. Well, just let me finish real quick. I think these more spiritual and ethical interpretations, I do search for those, and I think they are valuable. And I think the church has kind of lost out on a lot of that because of our unwillingness, I think, to kind of see the scripture that way. Sorry, Chad. Yeah, and I was just going to add that, I mean, I learned very early on um, in, in an even, you know, fairly evangelical reformed high school, every text points to Christ in some way. We used, and then we used to be asked to find how the text points to Christ. In some way, that's what Origen's doing uh, with the the spiritual reading. Is how does this uh, point to Christ? And so, I don't know that any evangelical has a problem with that per se. Um, and you know, now they don't want to give up the literal at the expense of the spiritual. And it seems that what Origen's up to is a little bit. That's how you know that there's a spiritual sense um, is because there are sort of uh, potential problems. So, you know, again, he calls them stumbling blocks 
that make you say, okay, the rest of this looks divine. There's so much about this is, that has meaning. What do I do with these parts that are intellectually difficult for me? I mean, I, like, I think the reason I like reading Origin um, is because, I mean, other points that I've brought up, like, I don't know what to do when it says that God commanded genocide. And it doesn't seem like the character of God to, ge- to be a genocidal maniac without reason. Uh, and so I need to look for other ways of reading this difficult passage from uh, Canaan um, to find, you know, why this exists, why the church has read this um, in her life um, for thousands of years, um, that, that it has some deeper meaning. And that's kind of what Origen um, I think is getting at, you know, I mean, you might quibble with how he gets there, um, but he's a man who knew Hebrew, who knew Greek, who loved the scriptures, who contended with anybody um, against them. I mean, you know, like the problem in the modern debates about people who read this is they pretend like someone who who goes through these kind of things is or who like, you know, who finds problems with the Genesis account, who's not a, a literal reading of Genesis is as if they don't love Jesus or love the Bible or, um, yeah. <laughs> and clearly he does all those things. Please check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash history of Christian theology. I will be updating a piece that will have my intro and apology uh, there and you can check it out and read it if it will help you to make more sense out of it. Thanks for listening. See you next week.